Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Today's interview focuses on the midterm elections and concerns they could be marred by violence, intimidation, or other challenges that undermine confidence in the results. Fresh Air guest contributor Arun Venegopal has our interview. Here's Arun. With just days to go before the midterm elections, millions of Americans have already cast their vote. And in some states, there are reports that turnout is greater than it's ever been. A lot is on the line, including control of the House and Senate, and the extent to which President Joe Biden can fulfill his agenda. But that's not all that's at stake. According to a joint intelligence bulletin obtained by ABC News, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the National Counterterrorism Center have issued a warning about a heightened threat of domestic violent extremism during the midterm elections due to perceptions of election fraud. And these perceptions could in turn be shaped by another phenomenon. In states across the country, Republican activists who believe the last election was stolen have been getting involved in the electoral process and attempting to reshape the very machinery of American elections. While many of those people say they're merely committed to election integrity, Democrats and some Republicans are concerned about disruptions at the polls that could end up casting doubt on the election. Our guest, Alexander Burzon, is a reporter at the New York Times who's been following this process over the last year. Before joining the Times, Burzon worked at ProPublica and at the Wall Street Journal, where she was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize for its investigation of secret payments by Donald Trump to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Alexander Burzon, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. Let's go back to an in-depth piece you co-wrote with other reporters last year when you were at ProPublica. At the time, you said that Steve Bannon, who served as chief strategist in the Trump White House, had galvanized thousands of listeners of his podcast called War Room back in May of 2021. This was in the wake of the failed insurrection. Bannon proposed a different idea, a call to action in which listeners would seize control of the GOP from the bottom up. What exactly did he mean? Yeah, what he was talking about there was this idea that you would have um, activists um, really coming into the local Republican parties um, through the sort of ground up. And it had been around for a while, this sort of precinct strategy idea. Um, but the notion was that we that the Republican Party wanted to really get this kind of what they would call like the MAGA Republican, the really... Um, pro-Trump sort of Republicans, and especially also um, people who were going to continue this idea that the election was stolen. And one of the reasons why it was so important to have those people in there is because there are certain things that the party can do vis-a-vis elections that is um, somewhat different than just any outside activists. It it, it really varies state by state. In some cases, it's uh, more structured that way than others. But there are ways that the party can sort of appoint people into election offices. They can 
Um, in some states, they kind of point um, poll workers, um, poll watchers often come through the party. So that was one of the reasons why it was impactful to have people um, actually coming in through the Republican Party. But you also at the same time had a lot of other outside activist groups. Oftentimes they were um, really kind of rebranding or repurposing of Tea Party groups, actually, that were now forming around this idea that the 2020 election was stolen and keeping it going um, all over the country. These these groups were, were going on sort of both. So again, within the party and then also outside of the Republican Party. So we're talking about positions like you said, um, precinct officers, but also election judges, right? And inspectors. Yeah, so the precinct officers or party officers, and they're also um, then um, often becoming part of what the leadership of the party is going to look like, both the county level and in some cases at the state level. Um, But they also, in some cases, have some kind of role in saying, like, who should be poll workers. It really varies state by state. Sometimes they just sign up, poll workers just sign up separately with the election offices. And in some states, like in Colorado, for example, there was a situation where the Republican and Democratic parties actually appoint the poll workers. And the Republican Party in El Paso County was actually pulling back some of the poll workers and saying, we don't want you and we're not going to allow you to work. And the um, clerk there, who's a Republican himself, um, but he really felt strongly that these people were very, um, should be allowed to work. They'd been longtime poll workers and were very able to do so. But because of their, uh, they weren't sort of people that were election deniers. They, the party didn't want them to work. But that was, a lot of other states don't necessarily operate that way, but that's just an example of the kind of um, what can happen with a party. You wrote that Steve Bannon has encouraged a kind of election vigilantism. What is that, and how do you think that can play out in the election? Yes. So the election vigilantism, which I will say, you know, Bannon is certainly a mouthpiece for and a very important one, but there's many others that are involved in um, kind of creating this idea and keeping it going. And, and many of whom I think it's important to note were including Bannon, who we know, you know, had a strong role in, in the efforts in 2020 around trying to overturn um, the election at that point. Um, so there's sort of philosophy around it is Democrats cheat and steal elections. And the only way the Democrats really win is to cheat. And so we need to find this cheating and we're going to kind of root it out of the system. And so they're coming at it from that perspective. They would also themselves say, you know, look, what we're doing is is we're just trying to make the system run better and be legal and, 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 and run in a legal way. But from the perspective of election officials and others who have looked at this closely, I mean, you know, you have just constant public records requests. You have people at the just asking questions over and over again. And, you know, in, in, in some ways, you know, a lot of this is like on its face. There's nothing wrong with this. There's, you know, the idea of a transparent election system is one that everyone should support. Um, but it does become um, almost to a point where it's made the jobs very difficult to do. And the other thing it's done is created this whole idea of like, let's look for problems. And then what they did last time was they had all these people who um, looked for issues. And then after they wanted to challenge the results, they then 
presented that as sort of supposed evidence that should justify overturning an election. And I think that's the concern this time around as well, is that you could use this kind of thing to continue to challenge results, as well as to continue to just undermine the idea of fair elections in the country among a very large number of people. Let's talk about Steve Bannon's call to action. To what extent did people get involved in the election um, process and and where? So it's a little hard to judge right now. Bannon himself is very boastful about it. He has said um, that it's that he's basically said, "Look, we're a hundred times or more organized than we were uh, last time in 2020. We have a, a complete plan that he talks about as far as um, challenging all the ballots that they can." Um, and at the both polling places and especially at the counting places and that they're going to be a very constant presence. Um, I don't think we know yet, you know, to what extent this is really borne out. There's one network that I've looked at closely through Cleta Mitchell, who's um, been on Bannon's show a lot and speaks a lot about um, this network of activists that she's organized. She was one of the lawyers that was involved in trying to overturn the results in 2020. Um, and she's talked about recruiting 20,000 people through that network. That network also works a lot with the RNC, which has also talked about recruiting thousands, somewhere around that number or more. Um, That's for both poll watchers and poll workers um, through this recruitment effort. Um, And they've really said, look, this is going to be a much more organized kind of situation this time around. Um, And a lot of the um, elections officials already this week are saying they're getting much more people signed up to be poll monitors, poll workers. There's groups in Michigan saying there's um, officials in Michigan that are saying that they have um, a number of more activist groups signed up to be the poll monitors than they ever had before. So certainly this is um, does seem to be uh, uh, appearing. One person who's leading the process of training these people entering the system is Cleta Mitchell. You mentioned her earlier. Uh, She runs the Election Integrity Network. She says she's trained more than 20,000 people, according to your um, reporting. Uh, What exactly is she training people to do that's different from the norm? So her training is is around the idea of as as you had mentioned, this idea of vigilantism. Um, She calls it the citizen's detective agency. So the idea is there is wrongdoing, as I mentioned earlier, that you know Democrats cheat. The only way they're going to win is to cheat, and we're going to catch them. They have manuals. They have a lot of training seminars they've done all over the country. Um, and then they form these statewide coalitions, as well as encouraging people to form local county-level task forces. And what they're telling people to do is basically go to election offices, constantly spend time at election offices, talk to election the election officials, and, and then to... Um, be extremely vigilant in their kind of monitoring the elections with looking for any sort of potential thing they could consider an anomaly. Um, and, and more recently, there's been some reporting that has showed um, how they're then talking now about using that to then create challenges to the results if that's what they choose to do. Cleta Mitchell's manual, The Citizen's Guide to Building an Election Integrity Infrastructure, has worried certain election experts, in part because it involves um, ideas like surveillance. What kind of surveillance is she advocating? 
Well, one of the things they were saying even was to investigate your local elections officials, your local, the the folks at the attorney general's office that deal with elections um, and to see, you know, are they friend or foe? So it's this idea of like our side and our people kind of with us and really trying to figure that out. And that that was concerning amid a lot of attacks on election officials and um, just in general, them feeling really um, like they're almost being driven out by this kind of vigilantism. Um, I've talked to a number of election officials who have either resigned recently or are planning to under this kind of stress that they um, have felt that they're experiencing. There is also to basically spend a lot of time at election offices. I mean, they do talk a lot about like being polite, following rules, um, and but just being a really constant presence um, in a in any way possible under the that the the law allows. In Cleta Mitchell's trainings, you say she's been telling people to spend time at election offices. What are they supposed to do there? Well, they're supposed to be um, talking to you know they're asking questions. They're just looking at all the procedures. They're seeing is there anything at all that they you know you could see that's not something they say should happen. In some cases, that's then led to. Um, lawsuits that um, and and so you know document they say document everything document 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 um, it's also just you know constantly kind of just being trying to kind of tell the election officials no you should be doing it this way one of the things that um, some of these groups have been doing um, recently is um, there's been a number of lawsuits and other efforts to try to force some of the local elections offices to use their poll workers or Republican poll workers or theirs in particular, the ones they want to use, and to also put um, those positions into leadership positions. Um, and the idea is just to be kind of a constant um, presence. Um, and more recently, um, I think I mentioned earlier, but more recently there's been, you know, we've been seeing that there's more explicit parallel where they're drawing between um, this idea of sort of document everything, find these issues, and then telling people that we're going to then use that information to um, make challenges. If the results end up in a way that we want to challenge the results, then we'll have all of this to use, which is exactly what happened in 2020. Now, the courts rejected that, um, but we saw just what can happen when you bring these cases and you bring all these challenges is you create more of a sense in the public that um, something is really wrong. And, and, and we saw where that led in 2020. So the, um, you know, even just recently Politico had a story where they um, quoted John Eastman, who was involved in the efforts in 2020 to overturn the election, was saying that he was telling um, people to document everything they're seeing. And then he's saying that becomes the basis for an affidavit and a court challenge. And how does this concern uh I guess, election experts or, you know, polling site workers who might be used to a different kind of culture. In what sense does that sort of disrupt the norm? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's been very disruptive for election officials to feel that they're, you know, constantly explaining things to people, but then there's this sort of refusal to accept that and, and they just keep pushing further. Um and that has been frustrating to the officials I've that I've talked to. And then there's also um, 
just a us against them sort of attitude that doesn't, it really hadn't been brought into the elections process in this way until more recently. The idea that um, you know, we're out to catch you and that you're doing something wrong. And it, instead of starting from the idea that, you know, this is just a process that maybe if you make a mistake, like, okay, you'll fix that. But this is really more like trying to kind of uh, be very oppositional to the elections procedures is, is the sense that the elections officials have. And, um, you know, again, I think these groups will say, okay, we're trying to just we're trying to like make make the process go better, but that has not been the experience from the officials that I've that I've spoken to where they've experienced this. This week, a federal judge uh, ruled in a situation involving a group that was um, trying to, I guess, execute this kind of surveillance you're referring to, and that too uh, with you know uh, armed men and women. Uh, the party, uh, the group is called Clean Elections USA. What? kind of surveillance were they, I guess, hoping to commit to? And what did this judge rule? Well, the the judge has now ruled, my understanding is that the um, there's limitations on what the group can do in terms of their surveillance. This is a group that also um, has grown out of this kind of just larger conspiracy theory world that has developed since the 2020 election. And one of the conspiracy theories that really took off is this idea that there's these ballot mules, they call them, that are people that are dropping off ballots on behalf of other people and that that somehow is is creating all this uh, fraud. And there's really no basis for it. The movie that publicized this idea has been really debunked in numerous ways, as well as the ideas that the group behind it uh, were promoting. Um, but the the there was a woman who kind of took that idea and decided to create a national campaign around it. And she then um, uh, has been um, promoting it very much on, on Steve Bannon's show, as well as social media. Um, and they've been recruiting people to kind of be these these vigilantes of the drop boxes. So people go and they kind of stake out the drop boxes. They watch people, they videotape people as they're dropping off ballots and they're trying to supposedly catch these uh, people that they think are doing something illegal, though there's really no sign that this is some kind of widespread problem. The idea of election fraud is largely premised on non-citizens voting in U.S. elections, immigrants, right? Among the groups you've been covering is it ever made explicitly clear that what some people are opposed to is not simply election fraud, which is actually extremely rare, but changing demographics and a multiracial democracy? In terms of, um, especially I had mentioned earlier, this movie, um, 2000 Mules, which came out. And the idea behind that movie is that there's these groups that are um, that are basically taking ballots to on behalf of other people. And it's this idea of, they call it ballot mules or ballot trafficking. Um, a, a number of my colleagues have, who are out on the campaign trail more than I am, they've, they've reported on kind of seeing that used in a way that is amplifying this kind of uh, 
tropes, racist tropes about, you know, they're going to replace you. And the, the sort of idea behind that is that there's all these people that shouldn't be voting that are voting, although it's not necessarily explicit. Um, in that movie, but that's the way it's kind of being used or suggested and that um, it's kind of playing on a lot of those ideas. Um, and that movie, 2000 Mules, has definitely been a, been a presence. And of course, Mule, uh, play on the idea of the drug mule who is presumably coming across the border or bringing in... Exactly. So it's the idea that there's elsewhere. people who are... Com- right, exactly. It's people that are coming across the border and they're this threat um, and it's 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 really kind of evoking um, this fear in people that comes out of this idea. New York Times reporter Alexandra Berzon speaking with our guest interviewer Arun Venegapal. They'll be back after a short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Some of Donald Trump's supporters are still hoping to overturn the results of the 2020 election, but others have turned their attention to the upcoming midterm election. New York Times reporter Alexandra Berzon has been reporting on this movement to get activists who believe the 2020 election was stolen to run for local election offices. Berzon spoke with Fresh Air contributor Arun Venegapal. At least in my experience, polling sites tend to be kind of sleepy, uneventful places. If you're lucky, you're in and out and you have an I voted sticker to show for it. What are the implications of what Bannon and all these other Republicans have done? Yeah, I mean, one of the things is just to make people think that this is some kind of widespread, you know, when we are reported on it and we're talking about it, then people kind of think even more like there's this really widespread intimidation that I'm going to get at my polling place or I'm going to get if I drop off my ballot. And a lot of elections experts and officials I've been talking to, especially in the last week or two, are quite concerned about this. There was some polling that came out that showed that people really think that like there are very high percentage of people think that they're going to face intimidation or problems voting. And a lot of um, voting advocates lately have said, look, like most people, like it's really not going to be common. You're going to be able to vote. It's going to be fine. I mean, there really is not widespread. We should say like there is not widespread problems with voting. There's, there's not issue, you know, major issues we're hearing about so far. There's early voting going on both with absentee as well as in person. And the kind of idea of incidents is, you know, the groups that are monitoring this are not seeing major problems. The issue is really more of what, you know, what could play out in just in the, in the time ahead from the from having challenges and legal cases and having this just, if the results are close, I mean, that's really where you might see, more issues, but the actual voting process uh, really has not been, um, seems to be holding up just fine as far as anything we can see um, with that. So that's definitely very important to kind of, for, for, you know, folks to understand, I think. Some of the people who preach the precinct strategy also threaten violence. You quote one person, a far-right blogger by the name of Jim Condit Jr. of Cincinnati, who described the strategy as the last alternative to violence short of resorting to the Second Amendment, he said, adding, which none of us want to do. Another activist, Daniel Schultz, said at a conference call, make sure everybody's got a baseball bat. I'm serious about this. Make sure you've got people who are armed. Are you seeing these threats materialize? Is there reason to believe baseball bats and guns are going to be part of this precinct strategy? The fact is there are there have been violent threats within the election denial movement. Um, specifically, there are um, 
people who talk about, you know, these people should be hung for treason. There are violent words said. There has not at this point translated into um, any kind of sense that there's violence at the polls or any risks or threats to people voting or to any specific idea around around that. And I think that's important for people to understand because you can get, you know, you can, you could start to get nervous just to like go and vote. And that's, that hasn't materialized. Um, and, but clearly there's, you know, the, the rhetoric is, has been heating up over the last year or so. Um, we saw it obviously with, with the, um, Paul Pelosi, um, the husband of, of Nancy Pelosi, who was recently violently attacked. Yeah. So, I mean, there is definitely and and just the amount of, you know, you're continuing to convince people and people are continuing to be convinced that there is this incredibly that there is basically this conspiracy. I mean, in in some parts, some aspects of of this idea is that there's this global conspiracy to hack voting machines and that, or Democrats are stealing elections. There's the, the ideas are very extreme that are being spread. And so the, that is creating, I think the, the concern from people that really study this and from election officials is that it's creating an atmosphere of this just complete undermining of a faith in democracy if you really think that the election system in this country is broken. And that that is when eventually you could end up getting to some sort of violence. And yes, there is rhetoric around it. We're not there yet. Uh, but clearly there's warnings of, of risk that, you know, and, and there is concern. And I think it comes from just this this undermining of the idea that that the elections are secure and the conspiracies around them are so, um, they sound so terrible to people um, and they're being spread quite, quite widely and, and, and the belief has been held and it hasn't gone away. It's not like longtime election officials are just taking all this lying down. You write that some have spent months preparing for potential disruptions and even participate in exercises organized by the FBI. What can you tell us about how they are preparing for possible problems on election day? Yeah, there's been a lot of um a lot of preparation around this. Um you know, there's a lot more awareness I think about the idea of misinformation and disinformation and and somewhat more kind of just trying to figure out ways to communicate and combat that. Um, there's also um, been increases in security. Some of the places have changed the layout of where they kind of put certain things and have created um, different procedures. As, as you mentioned, we had reported about um, these FBI exor- tabletop exercises. Um, the FBI has set up these election um task forces and people that are in, um, I believe all the states, um, that are point people for this. And there's, um, definitely a lot, a lot of awareness and preparation, um, around all of this this year. When it comes to elections for secretary of state, what could be the potential impact on the 2024 election? How many states could this make a big difference in? Yeah, there's actually a number of states where the, um, this, the Republican Secretary of State candidates are um, really part of, in some cases, really very much part of kind of this election denier and, and really cons- kind of conspiracy theory type of world about elections um, that have, have grown out of that. Um, one is 
and, and some of them are in um, quite significant states for the presidential election, Arizona, Nevada, and Michigan being the main ones for that. Um, and those um, candidates also, one of the things we reported on, had really gotten together and, and, and done this in quite a concerted way through an effort organized by some of the same folks who had been involved in trying to overturn the 2020 election. So this this has been, um, there's a group called the America First slate of candidates, and there's a number of them that are now on the ballot. Um, and so this is a, a, there's very significant Secretary of State races. What are the ways in which a Secretary of State can impact an election and its results? Well, there's many ways a Secretary of State can impact. I mean, one of them is they do a lot of the investigations and make sure that elections are functioning properly. They do a lot of the... Um, uh, they they often are giving out rules and guidance to local officials, um, the local election officials. And so, you know, for example, in... Um, in, in, in you know they can be very proactive in terms of just rooting out any potential issues or concerns and and they also issue guidance often on um, things like the role of of poll monitoring and just any kind of um, they basically are kind of guiding the local election officials on how to follow the law. And so there's a lot of influence that can come um, from that office just in terms of sort of directing or telling um, local officials how, how to do things. I think that one of the things is like we're really, you know, if if some of these folks win, we're going to kind of see how far that goes. I mean, some of them want to move to things like hand counting ballots, which, um, you know, experts and election officials say is really a, could be a major problem because you would end up having that, you know, there's more inaccuracies than machine counting. Ballots are so extensive and so long um, in this country, typically, that it can take an incredible amount of time. So people will realize, it'll, you know, election results will not be decided quickly And if this were the case. Um, I think the other thing the Secretary of State does is just also offers kind of um, the, you know, it's just important to get very good information about elections. And often that comes from the Secretary of State's office. So if you had... Um, people in office that are, um, you know, already giving out bad information about elections, um, misinformation, then that could become um, a potential, um, you know, issue. Have you had any direct interactions with people who are planning poll watching actions like the Dropbox vigilantes? I have not spoken myself to the Dropbox um, folks. I've certainly... Um, been in touch with many activists in general. I've gone to many of their conferences and um, I've gone to a number of these types of meetings. I've spoken to um, many folks. And, and one of the things that really comes out of it, and these are the people that are really now devoting their lives to this issue. So it's not at all representative of your average voter or person in the Republican base or whatnot. But there really is um, very strong passion among many activists on that side about this issue because there is this belief that the that the system has been stolen away from them, um, and so it's really a, a certain sort of passion or zealotry, whatnot, what within this particular activist base of people, I would say. Alexander Berzon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. New York Times reporter Alexandra Berzon speaking with our guest interviewer Arun Venegapal. Coming up, Kevin Whitehead reviews the new album from the jazz trio Thumbscrew. 
This is Fresh Air. The first time the three members of Thumbs Group all played together, when bassist Michael Formanek subbed in a band with Mary Halverson on guitar and Toma Fujiwara on drums, they instantly clicked and resolved to make a band. Their new album celebrates 10 years together. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead has more. Trio Thumbscrew from their new album Multicolored Midnight on the Cuneiform label. From the beginning, Thumbscrew have had a thing for off-kilter rhythms and shifting accents. Thundering bassist Michael Formanek and sure-footed drummer Toma Fujiwara can make lopsided patterns sound offhand and simpler cycles deceptively slippery. It makes for roving, restless rhythm, good stimulus for a soloist. This is the singular guitarist Mary Halverson's third album of 2022. She released a pair under her own name last spring, including the particularly fine Belladonna for guitar and string quartet. Halverson combines a traditional jazz guitarist pick-heavy attack with sparing but pivotal use of electronics to bend pitches and to split certain notes in two as if they're shedding unstable subatomic particles. guitarists do inspire imitators, but no one I've heard sounds like Mary Halverson. Thumbscrew do the punchy stuff so well they could stick to that, but this is no one-trick band, especially now that Toma Fujiwara sometimes swaps out his drums for vibraphone. That opens up the texture. And bassist Michael Formanek might pick up his bow to play low, moaning melody to emphasize that sonic expanse. The trio becomes a chamber ensemble.
so the music's not all about showcasing guitar. Vibraphone in place of drums gives Thumbscrew a bright instrumental color to play with, and it's not like they need drums to drive them on. They're self-propelled. on with seven records to their credit, Thumbscrews sound like they're still growing even as they consolidate their gains. Sometimes the trio play music by other jazz composers, from Benny Golson to Anthony Braxton, but they do best as on the new Multicolored Midnight when they play their own material, idiosyncratic tunes to fit an idiosyncratic band. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film. He reviewed Multicolored Midnight, the new CD by the band Thumbscrew. Coming up, David Cooley reviews the musical biopic parody Weird, The Al Yankovic Story, starring Daniel Radcliffe. This is Fresh Air. Tomorrow, the movie Weird, the Al Yankovic story, premieres on the Roku platform and streaming service. It stars Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe. It's a musical biopic parody, and our TV critic David Cooley says it isn't very factual, but it is, he says, very, very funny. Here's David. It's been a dozen years now since music parody artist Weird Al Yankovic teamed with writer-director Eric Appel to make a comedy short for the Funny or Die website. It was a spoof trailer for a non-existent biopic of Al Yankovic, and the short featured Aaron Paul as Al, Gary Cole as Al's disapproving dad, and Olivia Wilde as Madonna. It took more than a decade for Yankovic and Appel to make a full-length movie out of it, but they have. It premieres on Roku, which you can access from smart TVs, platform devices, smartphones, and laptops. This new expanded comedy spoof is called Weird, the Al Yankovic Story and stars Daniel Radcliffe from the Harry Potter movies as Weird Al. Toby Huss and Julianne Nicholson play Al's parents, and in this scene, featuring a younger actor playing a preteen Al, all the familiar musical biopic tropes of parental disapproval are hit, and hit hard. The factory will make a man out of you. But I don't want to work at the factory. I want to make songs. What? You want to make songs? Did you hear that, Mary? We got a regular Bing Crosby on our hands, don't we? Nick, you're embarrassing him. Oh, am I? Why don't you sing us a little ditty, Bing, huh? Such a little songbird. Sing one for us. Amazing grapes, how sweet the juice. It tastes so good to me. Stop it, stop. What a 
God's name, are you doing those aren't the right words? I know. I made them better. By changing the lyrics to a well-known song? No, boy, what you're doing is confusing and evil. My God, and I will not have that kind of blasphemy in my own home. Weird the Al Yankovic story is the funniest and most entertaining satire of musical biography films since Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story. Don't expect much truth in the telling here, but do expect some over-the-top fun. In this scene, Al, now played by Radcliffe, is making sandwiches for his roommates when My Sharona comes on the radio. An inspiration strikes for Al's first pop music parody. He grabs his accordion and performs immediately for his roommates, whose reactions are priceless. Who, my little hungry one, hungry one, open up a package of my banana. Who, I think the toaster's done, the toaster's done, tampered with a little of my banana. Where did that come from? Dude, I've got chills. I don't know, it just came out of me. I've never heard anything like that before in my life. You have to record that. Record it? No, come on, guys. Al, you've got something here. I don't know if it comes from God or the devil, but the world needs to hear it. Al records a cassette tape of My Bologna, sends it to a novelty radio show, then takes it to a record company where the executives there listen to the tape and offer their expert opinions. One is played by Will Forte, one of many, many playful cameos in this movie. The other, who speaks first, is played by the real Al Yankovic. I've heard enough. And what did you think? Do you know why they call it the music business? Uh, why? Because it's a business. It's a business. Use your head, kid. Nobody wants to hear a parody song when they can hear the real thing for the same price. What's the point? Yeah, it makes no financial sense whatsoever. Uh, my, my, my song was actually a, a big hit on the Captain Buffoon show. <laughs> what? Oh, Captain Buffoon? Really? Yeah. Wait, wait, Captain Buffoon actually played your song on the radio? Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us this changes everything? Ben, get this young gentleman a record contract this very instant. We are going to sign him to a 14-album deal. Wait, really? No! The Rise to Stardom story follows predictable steps, but with plenty of goofiness and detours along the way. At one point, Radcliffe, as Weird Al, gets to be an action hero. At another, he gets a big romantic subplot paired with Madonna. She's played by Westworld star Evan Rachel Wood, who has surprisingly sharp comic timing. Other treats come in the form of those cameos. Jack Black as Wolfman Jack, Conan O'Brien as Andy Warhol, and so many more. And as co-star, Rain Wilson from NBC's The Office is perfectly cast as Dr. Demento. But what makes this expanded version of the original parody short so much stronger and more giddy is the time devoted to Weird Al's original songs. Like the best comedy songs by Alan Sherman and Tom Lehrer, Yankovic's parodies are clever and enjoyable, especially if you haven't heard them in years. When I'm all alone, I just grab myself a cold. And if I get fat and lose my teeth, that's fine with me. Just lock me in the freezer and throw away the key. Singing, I love Rocky Road, so won't you go and I have a 
Al Yankovic wrote this parody film with Eric Appel, and Appel directed it. And for this new version, Yankovic wrote a song to play over the closing credits that by itself is longer than the Funny or Die parody teaser from 12 years ago. And that new song, too, is very, very funny and worth sticking around to hear. Whatever it was that Weird Al Yankovic had when he started, it's clear that he's still got it. David Biancooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed Weird, the Al Yankovic story, available tomorrow on the Roku platform and streaming service. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Mm-hmm.